Hello and welcome to JackCast. This will be the second Philosophy JackCast. I know it's been a while. I've been on hiatus for a while, just doing school and other things. I've also not been able to have Adobe CC, so I've had a lot of audio files that I've recorded. They just haven't been able to publish for a while. So now that I have all my equipment back, um, what you will hear is actually recording that I recorded about a year ago. Um, with Dr. Megan Fritz, who is a philosophy professor at St. Scholastica right now. She was a professor um, who taught at Utah State, where I attend, for about a year, and that's where I got to know her. So what we talk about in this podcast is a little bit about academia in general and just how she got interested in philosophy, and then we also spend some time talking about the idea of communitarianism. So because this is such an old recording or a year recording and a lot of what I do is reevaluating my thinking I think a lot of my thinking has kind of changed since then but so is probably hers and so is probably anyone's who I've recorded a year ago so this might be a little exercise in discovering how how informally our thoughts can change when we aren't really committed to them in any meaningful way um but because academics do have to be committed to ideas, I think it's probably unlikely that her thoughts have changed as much as mine. Anyway, so yeah, the idea we discuss is communitarianism, and what that even is is a conversation that we have that I hope you will enjoy. But for a little background, um, sometimes communitarianism is opposed to liberalism, sometimes it means other things for a whole bunch of different thinkers that aren't necessarily opposed to liberalism, but essentially um, some things that of liberalism that is somewhat characteristically opposed to is just the idea that, um, that the individual is basically supreme or that the individual is always the judge of what is good and that we can um, create some sort of neutral neutral playing political playing ground so like the supreme court can be like perfectly fair and unbiased it's kind of just a critique of bias in general um the idea of bias is often somewhat critiqued or the idea of um, individual ethics so just the idea that people can have these individualistic ethics in which the good person is like this super principled person who came to all their conclusions on their own and that they are basically like loyal to to themselves and that they basically like they are consistent in what they do and they are consistent in what they expect others to do but there is no real like formal cultural mechanism for people to understand if they're doing right because everyone is coming to their own conclusion so in some ways that's kind of a description of how modernity is so the people who are communitarians are kind of critics of what is modern and what modern life is and sometimes they argue for going back to a more more ancient form of ethics like often virtue ethics is considered a form of communitarianism but sometimes they are also not they attempt to like they aren't necessarily conservative and a lot of communitarians are criticized for being conservative but many have held somewhat marxist beliefs um and there are some and uh just a little final preface is that there are certainly some problems with communitarianism or at least problems with the appearance of communitarianism like you could argue that fascism and uh, Islam, uh, both Islamism, like radical Islamism, and more moderate forms of Islamism are forms of communitarianism. So um, I don't necessarily think like that those who are communitarians think it's like the one thing that makes like a society good. Like there has to be other things in with communitarianism to make a society good and to make a society well. Um, it's just more a description of what what make what are political problems even in general because liberals or individualists maybe is the better word often approach political problems much differently than those who are communitarian and those who are communitarian might may or may not have a collectivist bent they might may or may not be drawn towards marxists or other forms of populist politics that could also be more apolitical or they could possibly be theocratic in nature, um, or localist, like 
emphasize uh, the local community and engaging the local community and that probably would say that uh, federal politics or something like that in the United States is a lost cause. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that you're on the left or the right. Like, like I said, like you could probably see a lot of things that might be called communitarian and Marxist thing, Marxist thinking, and also in fascist thinking. So like far left, far right, um, even liberals. Uh, there are liberal forms of communitarianism as well, or centrist forms of communitarianism. Possibly is another way to say it, with like civic nationalism, um, patriotism, types of things like that. So. It's a wide-ranging idea, so hopefully anyone can engage with this, with our conversation. It's probably good to keep in mind while you listen to this podcast. So, enough of me talking, uh, let's hey. get into Hi, and welcome to this episode of, of Philosophy Jackcast. I'm here with Megan Fritz. Hi, hello. Dr. Megan Fritz, how I know her is she was a professor at the Uni- Utah State University, correct? Yes, I was. And... That is the university where I go, and now she is at the College of St. Scholastica, right? That's right, in Duluth, Minnesota, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, she was my intro to philosophy professor. I took that class to fulfill all the prereq requirements, and I had a blast with getting to know her and some other friends and made some friends in that class. So um, anything else you'd like? to say about your time at Utah State or whatever? Man, my time at Utah State was just the best I think that a professor could really hope for. Um, it was it was a blast. I think I had more fun than you guys did even. So, so I, was, I, was, I was very sad to leave, but I'm very happy to be here on your podcast today. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, just a little bit about what we're going to be talking about. We're just going to be first talking about, I guess, what got her interested in philosophy and her favorite parts of the job, and then we'll get into a little bit nitty-gritty of some of her views on things such as technology or, or political views or whatever, um, or philosophy of action. So first question, what got you interested in philosophy? Well, let's see. I think I had, there were like a few moments in my life I can point to, I guess, as uh, the beginnings of it. So I remember uh, very explicitly being around like 13 or 14 uh, and having a bunch of questions in uh, in Sunday school. So I um, I grew up religious like most people did um, and I uh, attended, uh, we attended a, a Baptist church and I remember just having, I was I was like a freshman or, or maybe even in junior high uh, and I had questions, I, re- I explicitly remember my, I had questions about like the, the, the dual nature of Christ uh, that I was trying to ask my youth pastor about and he was like, you know what, um, you need to talk to this other guy and this other guy was someone who went uh, to the same church who ended up being my mentor, he's still my mentor actually to this day um, who was at the time a PhD student at Notre Dame uh, in philosophy. And he gave me um, Augustine's Confessions and uh, Pascal's Ponce and I think a couple papers to read. So wow. I read those and I liked them and we talked about them and that was kind of that for a while. And then a couple years later, uh, when I was about 17, my best friend at the time was a couple years older and he was a philosophy major. And I uh, was taking some college classes for credit as a high schooler. And he's like, well, just take intro to philosophy. So we'll have something to talk about. It'll be fun. Uh, you know, it's a prerequisite. You might as well take it. So I took it. Um, it was 8 in the morning. And I think I was the only one awake in that class. And I was like, this is the greatest thing uh, that I've ever done. Um, the class was super fun. We read, we pretty much spent the whole class on Plato's Republic. So that made me decide that I, I at least wanted to do something philosophy adjacent uh, in college. At the time, I thought I wanted to either do theology or creative writing. I did actually end up double majoring. I did uh. creative writing as one of my majors. Um, but uh, by the time I took a few more philosophy classes, that had kind of sealed the deal. And I was like, I'm just going to try to do this. So I guess that was my very slow uh, warming up to the idea of studying philosophy. Uh, yeah, that's cool. That that seems fairly similar to how I started. I had a lot of questions growing up at church, grew up Mormon. So I do remember 
hearing Pascal's wager a lot. Uh, <laughs> no one ever was like read Pascal's like Ponce and I don't know. And I feel like Mormon academia is slightly slightly different about that. But yeah, I feel like I had a similar experience. So that's cool. What are your main research interests, and could you explain them a little bit so, so like the audience could understand, like a non-philosopher could maybe understand that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start from kind of the, the least technical and move to the more technical. Um, so a lot of the recent research that I've been doing is focused on issues in the ethics of new and emerging technologies. So, um, for instance, my, uh, my husband and I actually just co-wrote a paper on fake news. Um, and kind of the question that we're, that we're uh, interested in asking in this paper is, you know, is it, uh, is it always irrational to kind of believe um, the, the fake news headlines that are, that are out there? Uh, we think it's not always irrational to do so just because there's so much of it out there that it kind of becomes um, a decent source of evidence even though it is actually false. Um, it's, it has a, uh, a veneer of legitimacy to it. Um, we, uh, we follow up that question with saying, well, if it's not always irrational, if, there, if uh, people who believe fake news aren't always making a rational error, then how should we think about this problem um, of, of, uh, of fake news? How should we go about trying to you know, treat it, trying to uh, get rid of it, basically? Because a lot of the proposed solutions to this problem of fake news is kind of teaching people how to think more critically, how to think more rationally. But if they're not making a rational error, then these solutions probably aren't going to help the problem. So that's, um, that's a big topic that I've been working on lately. Um, we've also, I've also been working on some issues in uh, ethical issues that arise in machine learning algorithms. Um, ah. So we have uh, a lot of a lot of new tech relies on big data. So we have um, tons and tons of information that gets uh, well utilized by uh, these uh, algorithms that teach themselves, right? Yeah. So we use um, these really high-tech algorithms to do things like select the best candidates for a job sometimes. Um, so there's a lot of ethical issues that arise uh, in that that, um, that I'm working on. So that's one, that's a, that's a new area. My other two research interests that, are, that I've had for a longer amount of time than that, I'm interested in certain, well, I guess you could call, you could say I'm interested in religious existentialism. Uh, I never really know how to say exactly, uh, uh, how, to, how to classify this exactly. I primarily work on Kierkegaard, um, okay. and I'm work, working on a paper on Kierkegaard right now, but I've also recently done, uh, I, I, more recently I'm doing some work on uh, Nietzsche and Simone Weil. Uh, uh, so I've only vaguely heard of them. Simone Weil is is becoming a new a new favorite of mine. Uh, oh. I'm really really fascinated by um, her work. She's primarily known for doing. Isn't uh, she like a Christian socialist or something like that? So that yeah, so that's what she's known for. So she's known for being she's a Christian convert. She was kind of um, well, she grew up pretty much secular, but in a Jewish family, uh -huh. um, and then she converted to Christianity. So she's known kind of for two things, for being right, a socialist and activist uh, and for being a mystic. Um, I'm more interested in, in what people call her mysticism, which I oh, tend to think cool. is actually very, very interesting Neoplatonism that's kind of uh, written off as mysticism because she's a woman who didn't have formal training in analytic philosophy. But mm. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's, that's a, uh, another interest of mine. And then lastly, I'm interested in philosophy of action. This is what I did my dissertation on. Um, that gets really technical, but some questions that philosophers of action ask themselves are, um, you know, under what conditions are people acting intentionally versus acting unintentionally? When we explain what we're doing, when we give reasons for our actions, are those reasons also the causes of our actions uh, or not? These are some questions that philosophers of action write about. Um, it's really analytic-y and metaphysics-y uh, yeah. in a way that um, is not, I think, interesting in itself, but I do think it has an interesting bearing on other questions. So oh. those are my main three interests. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm only vaguely aware of Kierkegaard. I know he's one of those 
philosophers who you have to kind of like know the whole of his work in order to get it. Um, and so that's something that has made me kind of like, uh, then I have to really want to get into Kierkegaard. And You know, the I, fact that you know that about him means that you know him better than most people who know more about him, <laughs> quote unquote. Uh, most people do not understand that, and so they end up massively misreading him. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've, I, I don't even remember the ones I read, and the ones I read, I was really young. Um, so yeah, the most I've like engaged with Kierkegaard is just talking with Preston, his friend who will be on this podcast who I met through her class originally, but um, kind of vaguely, not skeptical, but just hesitant of existentialism originally. And it wasn't until read Heidegger for, because I was really interested in phenomenology was that existentialism kind of started to open up to me. And then with philosophy of action, yeah, I, I, I guess the only I've read intention for classwork, and that was that was quite an experience. And I guess I don't know is Nicomachean ethics technically. As oh, I part, think, yeah, that's absolutely. the start of philosophy of action. So that's Aristotle's work on ethics. Yeah. So anyway, intention I, is a is a wildly difficult book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's probably. I don't know, The Phenomenology of Spirit, which is the book I'm reading right now, is probably the most difficult book I've read, but that was probably like the second most difficult thing I've read. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I guess, I guess, uh, why, what, what caused your interest in Kierkegaard? Oh, that's a good question. That's a, uh, what probably caused my interest, actually, I think I know. This is, oh. This is going to be an, an embarrassing origin story. What caused my interest in Kierkegaard is misreading him, and based on this misreading, finding him, like, insane. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah, so I did, I, I made the mistake that uh, a lot of people, well, I wouldn't call it a mistake that a lot of people do this, because mostly it's just a sign. Um, but what happens is a lot of people, their first introduction to Kierkegaard is his book, Fear and Trembling. Yeah. Um, yeah, in my view, this is a mistake to assign that uh, to students who have never read anything else by Kierkegaard um, for a number of reasons, but, but what ends up happening is if you read that, which is, uh, if I can, I guess I'll just put it simply like this, Vera and Trembling is kind of like the, uh, the, the climax of a, like, 10-plus book dialectical argument that he's giving. Mm. Yeah, and if you uh, read that first, that was the first thing I remember reading. And yeah, I just read it as like an apology for Abraham, and I was like, right, huh. and a really bad one, right? <laughs> yeah. Like a terrible one. Yeah. yeah, I actually thought it was interesting, but I was that when I read that, I was like, okay, there must be something. Like there must be more to this. Yeah, that that is how it reads. It's like, well, why do we revere Abraham um, if he seems uh, like he? You know, gotta be either a murderer or, um, uh, you know, a, a faithless person. Um, and those are really yeah. the two the two options. Uh, and it, yeah. So right, if you if you read it just on its own, it does seem like a really strange, bizarre apology for Abraham that doesn't really succeed and goes into a lot of stuff that it doesn't need to go into. Um, yeah. So I did the same thing. As probably it was, in fact, it was assigned in some class. And I thought it was weird, um, and so I, I think my the reason I first became interested in Kierkegaard was just trying to figure out why why do we continue reading this person who's kind of just doing such a terrible job. Um, thankfully, my investigations didn't end there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. That ended up like that. Yeah, uh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's always either some like really personal origin story for a lot of different philosophers that people like, and where like people read it and it either relates to them or it's kind of just funny. I don't know how people <laughs> yeah. end up, but yeah, definitely. Yeah, so um, still to personal stuff before we get into actual philosophy. What's your favorite and your least favorite part of being a philosophy professor? I'm kind of hesitant of calling philosophy professors philosophers, but... Uh. Oh, I would never call myself a philosopher, so that's, yeah, fine yeah. with me. Um, so, most favorite part, 
without a doubt is is the students um that's like yeah that's very easy answer is is the students um runner up is having summers off um mm. <laughs> uh, that's yeah. kind of a joke but also sort of not really um, definitely the students I, I absolutely love teaching and getting to know students um, and uh, just like the you know I guess the whole reason I wanted to become a professor is because I had such a this sounds really cheesy but like a genuinely transformative experience in my intro class and I was like I just want to like do that. I want to be able to be the conduit for this. Yeah. 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 I yeah. I definitely have had a lot of teachers that I've really liked, and I I I've really yeah felt appreciated because it felt like you cared about teachers because uh, cared about your students because there's also some teachers I had who definitely did not care about their students and it's kind yeah of, there is and this is really a I mean I don't know how it is in other disciplines but I certainly do know a lot of um, a lot of other philosophers or philosophy professors who, who do not like teaching, um, who just sort of, you know, look with longing toward their sabbatical years and, and kind of trudge through the rest. And I think that's really unfortunate. Now, honestly, I, I, if, if I, you know, have students who are interested in grad school and they tell me that they hate the idea of teaching, I tell them not to go. So, uh, so that's my favorite part. Least favorite part um, is there is a really bad culture. I mean, surely you've heard of the the, the publisher parish um, sort yeah. of mentality in academia, um, where you know you need to be putting out research uh, that's published, or else um, the, you know you're you're no good. You're not going to get a job. People shouldn't take you seriously. Um, this is bad in all disciplines. You know, we see negative effects from this in the in the the physical sciences as well, um, yeah. but it strikes me as just especially kind of gross in philosophy where we're supposed to kind of be lovers of wisdom, um, but all of the career incentives point in the opposite direction and we end up with this massive literature where people are, you know, spending pages and pages uh, making these like really inane, uninteresting, um, gotcha objections to other people's like theories, and and I think that's terrible. So I that's I would say my least favorite part is kind of having to swim in the water with that kind of stuff. Yeah, I it's only I guess my second year in college, and I've only like just the amount of literature and journal articles I've read that just seem so like you're saying like inane or just so dumb it it bothers me and so I feel like I feel like like college is a great place to have people like read I don't know the greats or just like great books or whatever and also yeah I, I guess mm -hmm. that I don't know also different things from stem perspective but even even just the fact that like you could be reading all these things and learning all these great things and instead you're just publishing like uh, I feel like that's yeah. where philosophy professors get their where the stereotype is right <laughs> that they're just arguing about dumb things dumb science. oh absolutely because there's not because of the the just the competitiveness I guess of the of the discipline um, there's really no sense in which people are genuinely trained to be or have incentive to be um, like discerning appreciators of you know uh, the history of ideas um, and it and it shows honestly it's very evident yeah, yeah. and didn't you meet your husband in grad school, in I did school. meet my husband in grad school. Yep, I did. I did. Yeah, so um, that's fun, trying to find jobs in the same general area uh, in, a, in, <laughs> yeah. the, in the current job market. Yeah. <laughs> that's fun. Wow. So anyway, I guess let's transition to philosophy. So you said your dissertation was on the philosophy of action. From what I know and think I guess. So what is what what was the main point of your dissertation? You don't have to um, make this for a general audience. Just explain. All right. So the so you were really kind of introduced to philosophy of action through Anscombe and Aristotle. Yeah. Which is how I was introduced to philosophy of action. Um, little did I know 
that is the minority position uh, in mm. philosophy of action. Most people working on action hold a theory that is called the causal theory of action. The causal theory of action says, basically, that intentional actions are those things we do that are physically caused by particular mental states, namely caused by a motivating mm. brain state, so like a desire, and a representing brain state, like a belief, and those brain states have to not only cause the thing we do, but also render it rational, and if both those conditions hold, then what we have just done is an intentional action. Oh. Um, so the causal theory also then goes on to say that, uh, therefore, when we explain what we're doing by saying, you know, someone asks why we got in the car and I see something like, well, because I wanted ice cream and I knew that, you know, if I drove to the store, I could get some. But when I give an explanation like that, what I'm doing is I'm giving a causal explanation. I'm explaining what I did by citing the causal antecedents of that event. So there are a number of objections to this theory. Um, the, the most famous one is the objection from deviant causal chain. So basically, the objection goes, well, there are some situations where you can have brain states that rationalize an action and cause an action, but where the action still wasn't intentional. So the most famous case is a case with a, uh, two people who are rock climbing, I think, and, and one is uh, holding the other up by a rope or something, and he gets, uh, he, he has this desire to like kill, he, I guess he he's kind of wants to kill the person he's rock climbing with, and he's like, well, I'm, I'm holding him suspended by a rope right now, I could just let go, and he would die, and my desire would be fulfilled. And in the, in the example, the mere thought of committing murder causes uh, his palms to get sweaty, and, and the rope just slips through his hands. So the objection goes, well, you had a desire and a belief, they caused what happened, they rationalized what happened, but it still wasn't an intentional action, so it seems like there's something more that has to be there uh, in order for it to be an intentional action. It's not just about having the right causal antecedents. Anyway, there's other objections to it also, objections that like this causal view leaves out the agent herself and just bypasses explaining what's going on in terms of the agent by just talking about like brain states and physical causes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but the causal theory is still the most popular view because there's not a lot of other positive views that are options. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So Anscombe's view is certainly a view. Uh, and it's a view that I think is really plausible. But one problem with Anscombe's view is that very few people understand it, and uh, <laughs> yeah. of the people who think they understand it, any given two of them will disagree with one another on what it is. Yeah. Because she's 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 a student of Wittgenstein's, um, so she's very she writes like Wittgenstein, um, and Wittgenstein already is is himself quite difficult to um, yeah. to understand. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, but aside from Anscombe, who is very opaque, there have not been a lot of other positive views given that aren't, well, that are palatable to many. So one, one, one good example of a positive view is Scott Sion's teleological view. Um, basically, he's like, no, what's actually going on um, when, we, uh, when we act is that there are these, these real imminent um, teleological, you know, things happening, they're not reducible to causes. Um, that's a view, too. Also a yeah. view that I think is really interesting, but you can imagine your average naturalist is going to not want yeah, to definitely, kind of... Definitely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was trying to do a lot of things. It was trying to move focus from a focus on what are intentional actions to a focus on what are we doing when we explain what we're doing. Uh, and I try to give a, a positive view of action explanation that's a non-causal view. Um, okay. And uh, in short, what I, what I end up trying to argue is that action explanations are a form of what's called structural explanation. Um, and so instead of, I think, when we, when we explain what we're doing, instead of citing, instead of like trying to say, well, I have these brain states and they cause me to do this, 
I think instead what we're doing is we're um, we are indicating what other activities we're involved in that make our current action make sense. So if I'm uh, going to the store, someone asked me why, and I'm like, well, um, you know, because I'm I'm getting eggs. What I think this what, why I think this explains what I'm doing is that it indicates that going to the store is a constitutive part of getting eggs. Um, yeah. So there's a kind of agential structure there that explains the individual action. So that's okay. uh, that's that was my dissertation. No. Um, yeah, very I, analytic and 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 kind of boring, but one that I hope to use for more interesting things later on. Yeah, that's that's still very interesting. I actually just pulled it up. I just looked up your dissertation, <laughs> Actions and Causes a methodologi Methodological Inquiry and Explanation of Action, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so, yeah, and when you're explaining that the teleological view or your view, those, either, either of those seem much more <laughs> sympathetic to me just probably because I'm not a supernaturalist or mechanist which I guess just explaining in philosophy terms because naturalist no one knows what it even means and yes that's true it's, it's, no it's one knows really a term that doesn't refer yeah, yeah, yeah. agree but but what I guess mean is people just people who are pro-science and philosophy like avidly just want to think that their philosophical philosophical views need to in some way, uh, I don't know, either be a part of um, scientific inquiry or in weaker views, just like conform in some sense to scientific, natural scientific inquiry. So like, you know, if you don't, you don't want things that are unnatural or spooks or whatever, like sometimes intentionality can be viewed like that, where if you have intentions that are like abstracted from causes like you're kind of talking about then and if those aren't explained by either some brain state or some neuron or whatever then that's that's kind of a, a spook or whatever a ghost still yeah, in philosophy that needs, that needs to be get getting rid of <laughs> that's yeah. always a, a a black mark you know you never want to be called spooky by a by a, your you know your 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 neighborhood analytic philosophy <laughs> yeah 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 i remember in my philosophy of science class i wrote a lot against naturalism <laughs> in in that class or at least the, against the different forms of naturalism that appear because you know anyway not getting into technicalities but and I just remember like defending all these things that all the math logic people thought were really spooky or dumb. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is really interesting. We talked about magic in that class a little bit, and that was that was fairly interesting. But anyway, so actions. So that's that's interesting. I should probably read that, but I could tell maybe the audience might have just rolled over in their whatever might have turned off their <laughs> <laughs> the podcast but let's move on so what you you said something about questions you thought that would be interesting so what like that that could answer so yeah. what are what are those things yeah so i mean ultimately i what i what i insinuate in my dissertation i shouldn't say argue cuz i what I loosely begin to argue for uh, at the end of my dissertation is that the reason we find, at least the reason I think we find the causal theory so plausible, or a lot of people do, um, is that it, it I, I tend to think it's not that we have like really so much evidence for it, but just that we have a hard time seeing past our current theory of mind or theory of persons that's, yeah. that's extremely mechanical. Um, but that view of persons is extremely mechanical is like itself scientifically outdated. Yeah. Um, so even by its own lights, it does fail to be as like naturalistic as possible. If by naturalistic we mean kind of in, can you know conforming to like you know the uh, the the cutting edge science. Um, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of research that I'd like to get into at some point um, on how the Theories that we find plausible academically, uh, unfortunately, there's kind of a, a, a reflexive effect that happens where, um, so say, some scholars will propose a theory of mind. This theory of mind gets 
popular press, it gets absorbed by the public, and now uh, the public starts, if they start believing that, say, you know, they're just a, a walking, you know, ball of chemicals and that determines everything they do, now they start interpreting their experiences through this lens. Yeah. And I, I, this yeah. <laughs> yeah, I totally, I, I totally see that, or at least implicitly. I, I, I don't know, maybe it's more historical than that, but but yeah, I definitely feel like that. Like even even in high, that's a lot of similar things I write in in philosophy of science, and I definitely feel like that's the reason why I like phenomenology so much is because it's talking about that intentionality, and it's it's not mechanical at all. I guess yeah, in, in that sense that it's an analysis of something that's very. If I feel like if you treat it on its own terms, which is what Husserl and Heidegger tried to tried to do at least is that intentionality at least if you want to make it mechanical is a lot more than just what Quine said so like can be completely yeah. disregarded or whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah agreed right so I basically I just I, I think that the causal theory is, is really popular based on basically nothing about its own merits um, but that it does tell us a lot about a lot of the, the theoretical assumptions that we've kind of absorbed about ourselves and that um, you know, my, my, my very broad philosophical interest is just basically trying to do a kind of like genealogical debunking on all of our uh, uh, plausibility judgments. I think that just, you know, we, uh, a lot of contemporary philosophy relies so much on like, you know, what seems plausible? What are your yeah. intuitions about this? With like no concern at all for why we might think something is plausible or intuit something that has nothing to do with actual merits. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely feel like that's the reason why I'm, I guess I'm drawn to Nagel or, I haven't even read Collingwood, but. Uh, Collingwood's uh, amazing. Uh, people, people, people like him who try to explain, who are even, I don't even like Isaiah Berlin, but history of ideas, people that try to make arguments for why ideas take the shape they do culturally, or I guess that's entirely kind of what Hegel's spirits, at least how I'm coming to view is all about, is just normative views that take on their own. I highly recommend nature. Collingwood. I actually spend a decent amount of time on him in my dissertation. He's really underappreciated, I think. Mm. Yeah, it's he's been on my list ever since I read After Virtue, and it was like, Hegel and Collingwood, and I was like, ooh, histor historicist? Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> It's completely joking, but I guess that's kind of my interest is like, oh, this person, this person's not just judging things on a completely like level abstracted from history. Okay, I'm going to read them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, so that's, that's really interesting. Um, one sec, let me, I had your, so one last question about philosophy of action. Do you, do you view like action studied? in the domain of the sciences because I feel like I feel like if you asked a normal person like what you thought I guess this comes back to what you're saying but if you asked a normal person a normal person who has no interest in philosophy at all and you ask them like how like action works I think they'd probably act like oh isn't that studied by neuroscience or I don't know yeah. oh isn't that studied by um probably neuroscience I don't know I'm just thinking of like the pop science view of oh and chemical reaction or whatever happens in your brain, brain state, causal, it's basically causal theory of action, I guess, what you're talking about. So what, to what extent do you think like natural scientists can uncover that or do you think it's? <sighs> Man, I mean, I guess <laughs> I should say something a little more ecumenical uh, than I am going okay. to say, which is that I, I really don't, I think it's just almost totally outside the domain. Um, of the natural sciences. So Wittgenstein has a great passage in his investigations um, where he asks, he's talking about action, and he's saying, what's left over when you subtract the fact that my arm went up from the fact that I raised my arm? So basically he's saying, you know, well, when you take the, the mere event out of the action, what's left over? So people have misread this, um, as they tend to do with Wittgenstein, um, as Wittgenstein presenting a helpful tool for investigating action. Like, well, to investigate action, all we need to do is take the mere event 
out of the action and then we've got it that's you know that nugget there that's the action um like <laughs> yeah right doesn't sound like Wittgenstein um, and it's not if they went on to read the very next section in the book they would see that um, what he ends up saying is that this kind of computational method um, is 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 completely an error um, because it's not he doesn't think uh, action happens when you add a particular brain state to an event uh, rather he thinks well intentional action is what he calls um, a language game so to be acting intentionally is to be thinking of and engaging with the world in a particular way in a different way than someone is thinking about or engaging with the world when they're not acting intentionally um, so it, it it's uh, it's just a way of relating to whatever it is that's going on. Um, we're yeah. acting to, to be acting intentionally is to have a certain relationship to or to be engaging with uh, the world in a particular way. Yeah. Um, I tend to think this. I'm I'm very sympathetic to this. It's called the semantic view, um, or people refer to it as that. Uh, I'm very very sympathetic to that. Um, I think that's it, it, it. It's almost totally right. Um, and I think that Anscombe is much more Wittgensteinian than people tend to read her. They tend to read yeah. her as more influenced by Aquinas than Wittgenstein, and I think that's uh, wrong. Yeah, yeah. That, that seems, because as of late, even though I'm definitely procrastinating reading Wittgenstein, um, as of late, I've become a lot more aware of how Heidegger and Wittgenstein actually are very similar. And that, they do have a lot of sense. similarities. Yeah, and the idea of language games is like, a, I feel like, just entirely the idea of worlds for Heidegger, at least. And the idea of it being relational, mm -hmm. um, of it being relational to words engaging in a specific context. I feel like the only difference is, at least the early Heidegger was less linguistic, semantic oriented. I don't know. But... Yeah, and I think Anscombe makes this explicit. So you probably remember this since you read Intention. You know, she starts out the book saying, um, you know, well, what's an intentional action? Well, it's, you know, when someone does something where it makes sense to ask them why they did it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I remember that at least. <laughs> yeah. But I, you are right that there's, and, and in fact, a lot of the more cutting-edge philosophy of action is, like, very neuroscience-y. Um, there are uh, there's stuff people are working on where they are thinking about the brain as like a like a Congress or a Senate with a bunch of different <laughs> warring voices and um, I mean to me this is just next to lunacy but yeah I mean, no that's 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 the type of, that's just like the type <laughs> of stuff I do just making fun of people I don't know making fun of things <laughs> with my friends just being like oh. I don't know. I remember when I just learned that, like the whole C fibers thing. Yeah. I I, I just I just remember uh, <laughs> memeing the the crap out of that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just funny to me sometimes how far an analytic and Anglo philosophers can go sometimes. Yeah. Anyway, okay. I don't want to take too much time, but let's go out of philosophy of action and let's just ask a more general view related to technology because technology is one of my interests and one of the things I've talked about in my podcasts and believe it or not I was talking to my brother and what people thought I was going to be before I was interested in philosophy was a tech CEO so oh wow I, yeah very different now but um yeah, like Elon I, Musk. I really liked I really liked programming. I really liked a lot of other stuff. And I was, I was just the only word that could describe me as a kid, I guess, is curious. But so what's your general view of social media or the Internet? Oh, man, this is uh, my husband actually makes fun of me because my my view of it is, is so bleak, <laughs> um, is, is so bleak. Um, so the the Internet's obviously a great thing. Um, I would never want to like actually destroy the internet, even though I have I have jokingly um, talked about destroying the internet. Yeah. Uh, I I do think social media is incredibly 
incredibly bad for people. Um, in well, in a lot of ways, this will probably bleed into eventually your your political questions that I think you wanted to talk about. But um, so in the past, before the internet, right, we have uh, social groups and social the you know the conduit for the socializing is like being physically in person and doing things together uh, in a community. Yeah. And um, one great upshot of this is that when you know one one like side effect of just being in person with people and doing things together is that you do tend to converge on values to some extent this is just an effect of doing life together in the same place that this happens this is why you know people who live in you know large urban metropolitan areas tend to you know, vote certain ways politically and people who live in small rural communities tend to vote politically another way. We, you know, you just, you tend to converge on different, on, on the same basic idea of the good when you are living together in a community. Mm -hmm. um, and what this does is that it helps relationships out, right? You have a foundation for, for those relationships where you can always go back to that foundation and you have something in common. Social media has done this thing where it brings everyone in the world with access to the internet together without them needing to be anywhere near each other at all or ever really engaging in any activity with them beyond attempting to communicate. So this, I think, is just like asking for a catastrophe, which I think we've basically seen. Um, surely good things have come from it. I've met some of my best friends yeah. on the internet. Uh, I'm not saying it's, it's all bad. You I know, have too, which is really funny and people can call me a hypocrite for that. <laughs> no, I mean, it's true. It's, it's, uh, I mean, you know, a, a bad effect of modernization is it is harder to meet people that you have interests with um, in person. So online yeah. helps people um, with that. But it also, you know, obviously does all this other stuff. It, it dehumanizes the others so that it's much easier to be cruel to them or to think down, uh, the thing, you know, belittle them, look down on them. Um, it, uh, it it causes people to, well, it <laughs> leads to conversations between people who have no foundational similarities whatsoever because they have radically different living situations. Um, and I really do think that it is in a, for everyone who is online on social media, just like information overload. Um, I don't think yeah. people are built to have relationships with as many people as they're supposed to be having a kind of relationship with online. You know, it's, it's psychologically very burdensome. Yeah. Um, so I tend to be a pessimist, um, although I don't deny that there are good things about it. Um, but I think it's something that requires a lot of discernment and wisdom to be able to engage with and not become less healthy for it. Yeah. Hmm. That's that's interesting for two reasons. One is that I guess for the audience, Dr. Fritz is the only one of the professors <laughs> I know who's on Twitter. <laughs> and oh, it's true. I engage with Twitter. I engage with her on Twitter, and so that's that's kind of really <laughs> funny. Anyway, the second, yeah, and she gave a talk. You, you talked about Twitter in your talk, kind of about this that you gave at Utah State I about did. Kierkegaard and that, and it was like it's really funny because she <laughs> uses Twitter anyway. But also, you're younger than some some the old guys on there, anyway. And then um, the second reason is that I thought this was interesting is I felt like I had a very similar take, and it's probably lead, leads this probably leads into the political stuff well because I feel like politically we probably are fairly similar. Was that I was talking I guess to Preston, saying like I guess my take was that um, that before like even with just radio there was like three channels right or one channel originally. And so there was only a possible, there, it wasn't abstracted from a time and place as it was the internet, because there were certain broadcasts at certain times, certain things. And so it was more of a communal ex experience. Like if you think of like FDR fireside chats or whatever, and then as there were more, you know, diversification of TV, still with TV, you're still sharing it with other people, but there's more channels. And then once you get to the internet or streaming, then it's completely abstracted from any sort of time or place that not even like the premiere of things are communal experiences anymore. And even if you're like a super ultra fan and you would argue, no, like a f let's say I'm a fan of Star Wars, 
and I am a, like going to say, okay, no, the Star Wars fandom, Episode Nine fandom, it's it's a, it's my community. <laughs> is the fact is with the internet, this is maybe a very Gen Z thing to say, but generally things are leaked with the internet. Like generally things are are leaked enough that if you want to search enough and care enough about it, you'll you'll figure about that early figure about it early and so i i feel like um basically the idea of the internet community is kind of kind of uh, oxymoron in my view which is kind of funny because i made a lot of friends over the internet that really helped me and so trying to have those two views is kind of hard to reconcile but anyway i i thought it was very interesting and obviously sort of aristotelian way of talking about things that you if i, I guess yeah i guess the thing of I really like about Aristotle is that when you get into philosophy and you're introduced to either Descartes or Hobbes or any of the moderns or Hume, I feel like one thing that seems very absent in when you read about like how they talk about even about families is that there is kind of an like friendship kind of seems to be a problem mm -hmm. in yeah. which like it's hard to explain why friendship exists other than, oh, you're useful to me. Yeah. Which is kind of what Hobbes would say, or there could be some different Kantian argument. I don't have the mind to imagine what it would be, but it, it would still have to have to be some sort of, I guess, mechanistic way of looking at things. But I, I think the best thing about Aristotle is that like chapter on friendship where you read this and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to suddenly become a Machiavellian with my friends. Like this seems to be a lot more of the... I hate saying the word intuitive, but intuitive or mm -hmm. just everyday view of how people value their friends, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually really interesting. I, I, I think you're totally right that the history of philosophy has like a real um, hard time with friendship. Um, people don't really know what to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one, um, aside from Aristotle and like... I don't know, C.S. Lewis have, like, a good take on friendship. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's totally right. So now, I guess I'll just ask questions. So, so vaguely, if you were to summarize your social views, I've seen one word that, that I guess I've thrown around and you've thrown around is communitarian, mm -hmm. even though that might not be the what thing you identify. What is it or what? are your social views or when you think of communitarianism what what do you think of so i guess that's a whole different realm of questions but take at that what you want yeah that's actually a great question because for any two self-identified communitarians you're going to get like two different answers yeah about what that is so when I say I'm a communitarian, I've gotten I've uh, I've gotten some looks for calling myself a communitarian before. Um, some people associate it with like I don't know, like female repression or something. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they immediately think that you're Christian nationalist or something. <laughs> yes, no, they really do. Yeah, they think I'm like a nationalist, um, like a like a trad nationalist. Um, when I say that I'm a communitarian, I guess I mean a couple things. Um, the first is that I really I like the work of Michael Sandel. Uh, he's a contemporary philosopher, one of the one of the few I think like contemporary philosophers where I'd say like I really think he's doing some great work. Um, but what Sandel primarily writes about is uh, the the civic virtues and um, how to build a society that cultivates them and why it's really important. So um, I think that in order to have a society that functions well, um, you need to have a state that is interested in promoting the civic virtues, promoting um, a set of virtues that the you know the whole body that's being governed over can can have and that will bring the community together. Um, and I also think uh, that I, I agree with a lot of not everything, but a lot of what Alistair McIntyre talks about in After Virtue. Disclaimer: Everyone who has read McIntyre will know that he does not call himself a communitarian. Um, however, there are <laughs> communitarian adjacent things in his uh, thought um, where uh, basically he says, uh, look, you know, to uh, in any group that holds together has to have um, some kind of foundation, some kind of he, he says tradition. Um, yeah. uh, 
different people and I call it different things, but kind of the thing I was talking about earlier, that when you live together and do life together uh -huh. with people, commonalities will develop. Um, and, and McIntyre kind of refers to this uh, and the practices that arise from it as traditions. Um, he thinks to some extent it doesn't really matter what the tradition is. There just has to be something there mm -hmm. um, that is uh, robust enough to ground the rest of your values in. And I think that's right. And so I guess when I say I'm a communitarian, I mean, ultimately, that because of that, I think that liberalism, which, you know, oversimplified, uh, but, you know, but, but something that uh, liberalism is kind of based on is that there is this relatively neutral, thin conception of the good that is enough to build a pluralistic society on. And I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that that's true. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely not. I, I've, that was the first, Michael Sindel was the first communitarian, whatever, communitarian I read. That was even, like, his criticism of the Rawls was ma what made me not a Kantian. Yeah. After reading that, I was like, okay, I, and <laughs> what's a right thing to do, I think was probably one of the best just explanations of libertarian views of justice and Kant's view and Rawls' view in a very simple way. He has good stuff on YouTube from what I remember. He has a whole bunch of lectures on YouTube. So anyway, I thought uh, Michael Sandel's great. He's and, great. Uh, yeah, I actually think the book, the book was my dad's actually. I just, I realized, oh, I need to read a book for English and it has to be, it has to be one that I can read fast. I was like, oh, look, Michael Sindel's and then I read it and I'm really glad I did that <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so this sort of is related to some of the stuff that we were talking about with respect to new technology, right? I was saying yeah. that there's like this kind of like overload of information and, and options. Um, and I think that a mistake that, uh, that that liberalism often makes is conflating autonomy uh, with freedom. Uh, so autonomy vaguely being, you know, like the ability to do lots of different things. Um, you know, we, we uh, our autonomy increases when our number of choices increases uh, versus freedom, the ability to maybe do the thing that you want to do. And I think liberalism places the high value on autonomy um, a high value on having, you know, different options, not just having like one thing you have to do. Um, and I think I'm not, I'm not convinced that autonomy is that valuable. I think I am convinced that freedom's valuable, and that, and that often I think that they're at odds. Um, when you kind of see this yeah. phenomenon happen, uh, they call it like the Netflix phenomenon, where uh, you want to watch a show and then you go to Netflix and there's like one trillion different shows, mm -hmm. and suddenly your night's gone because you've just been looking through shows trying to like find the best show. Um, so you had like maximum autonomy, uh, but you really weren't free to choose a show because your brain was kind of like fried by the sheer amount of options. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I remember, I forgot what documentary, but I think that was one thing that one, I guess, implicitly communitarian view I had always held was with food, I guess, <laughs> um, was like, I I guess my family just always values food a lot. And so I just remember hearing of like all these Japanese, you know, restaurants that the they they don't have like a menu or whatever. The 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 guy just makes the food for you and yeah. he will get re really offended if you like ask for a certain thing cuz he knows what's right, not not you and you're probably going to come away from like at least my dad's come comes away from that re restaurant like with a lot much more fulfilling experience than if you went to a random even a really good sushi restaurant and you just ordered like some something you thought you wanted right yeah like sometimes other people know what's best for you and i feel like that's <laughs> something that is hard for liberalism to accept it is also hard for someone to accept when you're a teenager i guess is <laughs> is just like like you know, the parents, your parents may know something that's good for you that you don't always know, like what your emotions say isn't always right. And also, so I guess that was my yeah. point to that. And I also remember, yeah, I guess um, when you're talking about the traditions or what McIntyre calls traditions and having some sort of foundation for friends, I think that's honestly the main reason why I started this podcast was that feels like I have specific friends for which I share like you know the value of technology specific friends that i share the value of art and specific friends that i shall share the value of philosophy but those three 
worlds or communities don't mix at all. And I tried to find a way to get those in dialogue. And obviously, you just said something about technology. And so you've brought those two. And I've tried to make sure that every every person I've talked to have had a little bit of overlap, which it's so easy to make something overlap with philosophy. But um, <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, I find that I find that interesting. And that was probably a better way. I I wrote that to Dr. Otteson because I remember writing, I was like, oh yeah, this this does a lot seem like making a more coherent narrative or whatever McIntyre talked about. Yeah. This whole narrative way of conceptualizing things. And Absolutely. Yeah. You need the 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 commonly held narratives to kind of secure the community. You can't just have all these different, yeah. you know, narratives running around. And and this well, is, you know, Yeah, and his view was that a narrative like uh, someone's happiness can only be like I'm missing the specific words, but uh, some like he's t- talking about someone's individual happiness or living a good life can only be a, a necessary condition of having a good life is having like a specific like narrative structure to one's life, yeah. I guess. And so if you're just having a life that seems like you're just doing a whole bunch of random things and they don't make make sense together, then that's gonna be worse generally worse off than if you did i guess yeah absolutely which i guess is implicit i didn't even think that but it's implicit in making this podcast which is interesting so yeah so i guess i probably agree with your general analysis or definition of communitarianism um i feel like it's much easier just to put it in opposition to what we all know which is liberalism than to describe it but yeah i definitely feel like a main idea of it is other even just putting in simple interpersonal terms is like other people can know what's best for you it a neutral system um that doesn't i guess i don't want to say discriminate but a neutral a neutral system isn't really possible Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and there's and like that you're a saying, and and that you're saying you can have this value-free way of putting together society where everyone's just their own little elements dangling and suspended in some fluid that's completely, <laughs> you know, <laughs> completely doesn't interact with that, and they're completely abstracted from it is is impossible. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I this is Aristotle's idea, right? He's like, um. He he starts from the opposite end that the that the contemporary uh, political liberal does, where instead of saying like, you know, oh well, I want to make the community good, so I need to make like the individuals well off. He's like, well, no, you to make the individuals well off, you have to start by making the community itself go well. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's sort of a difference in um, starting points. Uh, if you think that to you know to make the country good you know what that means is making each individual person happy well you're just kind of missing the you know how human well-being is grounded at least according to the communitarian which is in the well-being of the community yeah yeah and i guess that's goes back to my old point of friendship is that it feels like liberals ideas that you can some you can be satisfied on your own or you can be like i yeah. lived a I lived a good life. I lived a happy life by doing your own things, which I guess if you think that's selfish, then that that is one argument for communitarianism, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. feel like or it just was... or just impossible. You might think that's yeah, yeah, impossible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or just impossible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Um. Yeah. And I feel like it's interesting. I feel like it's also interesting to analyze what sort of communities do exist. Um in terms of one your ideal communities but also if anything can be said to exist uh, communities can be said to exist and especially in the united states because the united states is on a whole nother level of abstraction yeah than <laughs> other than other places because they're you know settled <laughs> anyway the, the history of the united states yeah whatever <laughs> anyway um but and growing up mormon has been interesting to figure out like to what extent because even even with a lot of people I know who identify as outside being the church, I feel like almost everyone I know in Utah that I feel like is acting in good faith says that the community was a good thing. And it's mm-hmm. kind of scary going away from that because that's something that's very, I feel like, unique in Utah that I've been able to understand is that people know their neighbors even in suburbia 
and people know their neighbors neighbors and their neighbors and they generally know the names of everyone and they engaged with like I have a lot of people that I would have made friends I wouldn't have made friends with if it wasn't for you know all those activities and I feel like people still understand that even when you're talking about schools it's like if a lot of people say oh we'll just go out and make friends but I feel like something that people don't really understand socially is just that institution like but institutionally you know schools exist and then you make friends and even though you don't say you want to go to school you end up making friends and that's like a good you discover from school and all these things that you're supposedly forced to forced to go to or whatever you oh yeah your job yeah yeah your jobs or whatever is that you end up and people often think that you can just go out into some nether space (laughs) and just and just make friends but it's often just go to the mall yeah yeah yeah, (laughs) yes that it's somehow misunderstanding how humans so well-being and ability to socialize being with others as Heidegger would say or whatever works yeah absolutely I 100% agree yeah cool um let me see if I had any other questions or any other things wanted to say I'm just curious so so what does what does your uh what does Frank work on what does your husband work on I know philosophy of science yeah yeah so he he mostly does philosophy of science um he does some epistemology. So he in grad school he did a lot more formal stuff. He worked on some issues in Bayesian probability theory. Um, but right now he's doing a lot of work on values in science. That's his current research. So we're doing some stuff together on tech ethics and um, he is doing some work on, well, he's kind of got two current interests, values in science, like to what extent is science or should science be value neutral or is it even possible? Um, and then he's really gotten since graduating into uh, ancient Roman thought so like uh and even more recently stuff on like 19th century romanticism and that era of scientific development and yeah i've always been interested in that yeah so this is like a big turning point for philosophy of science or like you know thought on on scientific methodology and stuff yeah like I don't know, I just know that everyone, all these philosophers, even though scientists didn't like it, like Goethe's work on optics. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And we're like, you can have people all over the place, like Schopenhauer and Wittgenstein, and all these people be like, this is the greatest thing I've ever like read or whatever. (laughs) And obviously scientists and like opticians, I guess, or what they're called. don't like agree with everything, but I found that (laughs) phenomenological. I just, I remember the Wikipedia article being very interesting. I am nowhere near uh, Expert. Yeah, there was a lot of wild stuff going on, like really big advancements in astronomy that was like, mm. you know, and obviously, you know, the, uh, you know, Darwin and all the things that yeah. went along with that. And so really interesting era. And I guess he's doing, he's kind of transitioning into doing more history of philosophy of science now. Interesting. Oh, that's really cool. So I'm going to wrap up the podcast now. So thank you all for listening, for getting through that. Uh, please tell me if there's anything I need to do better, uh, a way to make these more intelligible a way to make these more engaging but thank you for listening dr fritz and thank you dr fritz for coming thank you i had such a good time great so see ya